Uh, hello, um, good morning. Uh, I'm Ashley. Um, thank you for having me. I think it's the polite thing you say when you go to a new place. Um, but thank you for inviting me. Chris invited me to come over. Um, and yes, as Chris mentioned, I've known him kind of in a mentoring role over a few years. Um, found Chris to be a bit of an odd one. Um, odd in the sense that obviously his working life orbits around kind of two centres, um, the church and then his uh, other secular work. And yet I found that that's been a really potent combination. And um, that means that Chris uh, fully understands all the stuff that perhaps I've lost over 25 years in ordained ministry and gets to see all that all the time, which means that Chris will always have that edge about him, which I think is a wonderful thing. And I've really appreciated getting to know Chris and seeing that. I heard it a bit in what he said to the children today. So uh, so that's a good relationship. And I've also, I've known Jonathan for, well, I've known of Jonathan for almost 20 years. Got to know him a bit more since he's been over here. And um, I like what I see. And I can tell you from the minister's world that people respect and value Jonathan. Um, so he's a keeper. Um, so I hope you look after him. Um, he's viewed highly. Um, this is the second time I've spoken at Lim Baptist Church, but none of you, I can be assured, ever heard me the first time. Because it was, I think, a Thursday afternoon at about four o'clock, when about 20 years ago, I was um, being filmed as part of a Baptist home mission video. And they used this building, I think they used this stage, because you could black out the building. I still see the blinds around the thing. So back up. And they had lights all around, and they had like a hard bar stool here, and I sat on the bar stool, and, and they asked me questions, and I had to be filmed with this black background around me. Um, actually, what happened is, just before they started, the director bloke stepped in and said, stop, stop, we can't, we can't begin. And the guy said, the film guy said, why? He says, there's too much glare coming off his forehead. <laughs> and someone hurriedly went and got another light that illuminated a different part of me, which kind of counteracted the bear. And as they switched it on, they blew all the lights in Lim Baptist Church. Um, but it's all repaired. It's all good. So I'm very pleased um, about that. Um, Chris has already prayed. Um, you'll know this is about passages, parables that Jesus speaks about. So let me just read to you the passage. If you've got a Bible or a phone or whatever you're going to use, um, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 9. And um, although the key verses are 16 and 17, we're actually going to start right back in verse 9. So Matthew 9, 9 is where we're going to begin to put some context on this passage. And um, in, I use the new RSV, and it's entitled The Question About Fasting. And we get this little conversion story uh, before we get into the, the parable itself. So Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, 
go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skin bursts and the water is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Kind of want to do this a bit ice skating-like, which means that we're going to kind of do the preliminary uh, official bits, the compulsory bits first, and then we can get into the kind of free skating bit a bit later. So that's the way I'm going to do this. The passage, um, this Matthew 9 account, is also found in the other synoptic Gospels in Mark and Luke as well. So Mark 2 and Luke 5, you find virtually identical accounts as we find here in Matthew 9. Uh, only difference really is that in L- Mark and Luke, you find that Jesus converts not a tax collector called Matthew, but a tax collector called Levi. It's called Levi. Scholarship would now kind of agree that they're one and the same that perhaps his name was Matthew Levi or Levi Matthew. It doesn't really matter, it's the same person, just given different names and titles. But of course, the author of this gospel is Matthew, so he's writing about himself. In verse 14, the disciples of John come to Jesus with this question. Now, John, you'll understand, John is one of the good guys in the story. John is the one who uh, paved the way for Jesus. Um, Someone once described John as being the last of the Old Testament prophets. Um, I love the the description of John given by a theologian called Walter Brueggemann, who describes John the Baptist as one who looked like yesterday and spoke like tomorrow. He looked like yesterday, but he spoke like tomorrow. So John's a good guy, so presumably therefore the disciples of John are also the good guys, but they come to Jesus with this interesting question. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now, the disciples of John have obviously worked out that the Pharisees are themselves the good guys. They're the God guys. The Pharisees are the ones who live exemplary lives that all religious people should follow. And therefore, to follow their religious practices is to stay on track and to live life the good and the right way. They have an understanding that faith is practice-based, that the laws are there to be adhered to rigorously in order to practice right religion. So it is that Jesus and his disciples, who do not fast, stand in conflict, in contrast to the received wisdom of the day, which is that, of course, you fast and fast regularly, just like the Pharisees. 
So it is that Matthew is setting up the issue for us. The way he's constructed the story is to set up this issue, set up the question, and then let Jesus rip and see what he says to answer these words to us. And Jesus' response comes in the form of a comment and then two illustrations. We're going to look at these things. He makes a comment and then gives two illustrations. The comment. And Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Sounds like a bit of a Eric Cantona-esque riddle, doesn't it? The seagulls will follow the trawler, dot, dot, dot. The wedding guests cannot mourn. Now, Jesus has not told them yet the parable of the wedding guests. That will come in chapter 22 of Matthew. But this analogy, this has a strong appeal to, the, to, to Matthew's readers and hearers. They would understand these analogies of grooms and wedding guests and brides and, and wedding feasts because they would have drawn from their understanding of the Old Testament when in two places Old Testament prophets write about these very things. So in Isaiah 62, we find these words. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This understanding that God is the bridegroom, rejoicing over the bride, which is his faithful people, the Christian, the believing community of the time. Again, in Hosea chapter 2, it says, And I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. And I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So what initially, perhaps to our ears, sounds a bit enigmatic, this statement about the, uh, the wedding guests not fasting while the bridegroom is present. Jesus is actually saying something which makes perfect sense to his hearers. That while Jesus is here, fasting cannot take place. And just a little word about fasting. The passage is not predominantly about fasting, but just a little word about fasting. Um, Jesus states that the disciples do not fast because the bridegroom is here. Fasting becomes appropriate when the bridegroom is taken away, when Jesus is taken away. And perhaps especially given the violent nature of the death of Jesus Christ. That is a time for mourning and for fasting. But a time will come when fasting should happen again. At the moment, I fast on Mondays. Um, I skip breakfast, I skip lunch, I have a big tea. Um, I find it useful to me. Fasting is there to be part of the Christian practice of today. What the rest of the passage is then about is about a proper perspective on how you view the practices of your faith. What spiritual growth will be brought about, not through necessarily observing religiously some certain practices, but through having a heart and an intent which matches the newness of the heart and the intent that Christ is coming. And Jesus illustrates it then in these two ways. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak and a worse tear is made. 
putting patches on clothes. Despite the fact that my daughters, as many younger people do, wear jeans that probably could well do with some patches in their holes, apparently it's fashionable. You're very pleased I've not done it this morning. Patches don't work in contemporary fashion, but when times are hard, especially in first century Palestine, this would have been a very common practice. And just as the old garment, which has been worn and washed and stretched and becomes a bit threadbare, can't handle a new piece of unshrunk cloth, as soon as you bang it in the wash, that'll shrink and rip the cloth even more profoundly. So it is, Jesus is saying, that the old forms of faith and religious practice cannot handle the newness that Christ is bringing. And then he says this, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now many of us are very familiar with this picture, we've heard it many times before. If you're not, just let me explain that in Jesus' time, because of the waterproof properties that tanned leather has, that wine was often kept in these tan leather pouches. You have your little water bottles. I've seen a few around today and those new ones which kind of keep things very cold all day, which are quite remarkable. But they have these tan leather things. But over time, the tan leather became hard and brittle. And if you put new wine, which is still kind of fermenting and still kind of expanding, releasing gases, if you put that in an old wineskin, turn the top on tightly, the whole thing would just split open and burst. And had two implications. One, you lost all your wine because it was spilled over the floor. But also you ripped, you destroyed the old wineskin that you put it in the first place. And I don't want to kind of, it's an analogy Jesus using, I don't want to kind of read too much into it. But I was intrigued by that idea. That he didn't just spill, it couldn't handle the new. But also that new wine potentially would destroy the old as well. So make of that what you will. The new wine which Jesus is bringing, this new way of being God's people and knowing him, is therefore fundamentally incompatible with that which has gone before. The old forms of Judaism, which have held sway for millennia, simply do not match what Jesus is doing. Three into two doesn't go, my maths teacher told me. And this new wine does not go in the old wine skins. This all begs a question, in my mind at least. When Jesus is explaining this, and when Matthew records this story, which clearly seems to be important to him, is he talking about a one-off event that happened a long time ago, or something that actually we might apply to life today? Is Jesus speaking here simply about the fundamental shift of faith in God, whereby with the coming of Jesus, the old sacrificial system is, is no longer useful, for, fit for purpose. It no longer can handle what Christ is bringing, what Jesus is bringing. So therefore, the old sacrificial system is out because Jesus is the final ultimate sacrifice for all our sins, and therefore, something entirely new is coming, to which the answer I think is obviously yes. 
Jesus is speaking into a moment in time here. That with his coming, all that stuff that has come before is now to be superseded. This is not a patchwork, a kind of amended, a kind of put-together, repaired form of Judaism. This is completely new faith 2.0. It's something entirely new. You can't mix funerals and weddings. You can't mix different fabrics. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. The religious practices of the day, hard and inflexible as they have become, can no longer handle the new things that Jesus is doing. But there's the other question. There's the other question. There is something here about whether Jesus is saying something about the nature of faith into the future. A hundred years after Jesus ascended to heaven, a thousand years later, two thousand years later, is there still the danger that remains for the followers of Jesus today, the Christians, the little Christ, who too might be trying to contain the new that Christ, the spirit of Christ is bringing within old forms. No longer fit for purpose. No longer good. It begs that question as well. What is, what is going on here? Um, there's something here which Matthew is saying, which is, which is about joy and about happiness. The story it says is about weddings and about celebrations and wedding feasts. That's a happy time. I, I love going to weddings. I love being part of weddings. I love doing my bit in weddings, what I'm called to do. There's something here about joy. The whole nature of what Christ is bringing is qualified by joy. So if something new is coming, which is characteristic of a joy, you've got to kind of suspect that there's something here which is of good and of God about that which is happening. And there's something here in the passage that is specific for Matthew, which I think is quite profound. What we didn't do is go back to the beginning of this whole section in Matthew's Gospel, which I think starts back in Matthew 8. Matthew 8 and Matthew 9 run together. The reason I say that is simply because of this. Listen to these. Matthew 8 and 9 are all about healings. Matthew 8, chapter 1, Jesus heals a leper. Jesus then heals a centurion servant. Then Jesus heals many at people Peter's house. Then Jesus heals the Gadarene demoniacs. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus heals a paralytic. Then we read our passage that we read today. Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector, and there's the question about fasting. And then in later on in chapter 9, we read that a girl who's restored to life, a woman is healed, Jesus heals two blind men, and Jesus heals one who was mute. Why place this little story about patches and wineskins in the midst of all those accounts about healings and lives transformed? Why put it there, Matthew? Why did you do that? It's because Matthew's conversion, this Levi-Matthew conversion, is absolutely something which matches the model of a healing that Jesus has done. Matthew realises that in reflecting on what Christ has done in his life, it's like like that that girl who was lame and can, can now walk. It's like those people who were blind and now can see. It's like the leper who was despised and excluded from the community is now restored and brought back into it. And the joy of the wedding feast is a brilliant analogy 
to recognise that is exactly what God has done in this man's life. In the middle of all these stories about healing, sits a man called Matthew, a surprised and very grateful man called Matthew, who we take to be this very author of the book, who in recounting the story of his own conversion, we get a sense of the thrill and wonder of what Jesus has done to this man's life and the transformation he's brought to him. Matches the joy. Matches the idea of a wedding banquet and a feast and a wonder of the new things that Jesus is bringing into this world. In fact, it says in verse 9 that as Jesus was walking along and called Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him, it just includes this really random little detail. It says that Matthew then arose, he got up. That word in the original Greek for arose, get up, is the word that's used for resurrection. Matthew absolutely understands that what Jesus has done to him is that he was dead. Dead in his old life and his sin. Jesus has called him and he's risen up, resurrected into this new life. Just like he's done for all those sick and ill people. Kind of brings us back to that question, why do Jesus' disciples not fast? To which the answer then is quite obvious, because they're too caught up in the idea of having all the fun with the bridegroom who's there in the celebration of the new life that he's bringing into this old world. So, so what about us? Are we living in that new Matthew healed, resurrected, converted life? Or are we still doing what John's disciples and the Pharisees were all still doing, stuck with their old religious practices in the dead old superseded world of that which had gone before? And I asked the question about whether this is a one-off thing about the newness of Christ or whether it has meaning for us today. Well, I think the answer is yes. It absolutely is primarily about the newness that Christ was bringing. But because there are so clear parables about the nature of this new life, the joy that it brings, the healing and transformation it brings, then it clearly, I think, says something to us today about our own religious discipleship and our practices, both as individuals, but more importantly, perhaps as a church community together. Solim Baptist Church, brace yourself for a moment and think about what here might need to change to accommodate the new wine that Jesus is bringing by his spirit into your church to your church let's get practical Um, I guess it would take me a literally a month of Sundays to perhaps go through a whole lot of illustrations about how we might today, in, in a church, and, and I identify ABC, we're very similar to you, we're very similar to you in our, in our churchmanship, whatever the word is these days, our ecclesiology. Uh, we're very similar to you. Uh, what are the kind of things that we need to be thinking about and doing to make sure we are not restricting this new life that God is bringing into his church? 
As I say, I could take a month of Sundays over this, but I won't. I'll give you just four illustrations to give you some ideas, but I want you also to think about what you might be being prompted to look at yourselves. Here are my four that I came up with last week. The first one was uh, simply a point young. A point young. I don't know how old Jonathan is. I kind of, you're a bit older than me. A little bit older than me. Um, I'm 54. Um, and um, I would suggest you need to appoint young. Appoint young. The church is in danger of sliding and we're all becoming a bit greyer, a bit slower, etc., etc. So I would suggest you need to appoint young. Which means that when we appointed our youth worker, our last significant appointment in the life of the church... Uh, one of the things in my head was that, you know what, I just want to appoint the youngest person who applies for this job, which is a bit of a stupid thing to say, but that was very significant in my mind. And um, interestingly, the guy we did appoint was actually the youngest person by probably around 10 years compared to the other ones that we appointed. He was 24, 25 at the time we appointed Rob. Um, our children and families worker appointed him, not for any kind of deeply, profoundly spiritual reasons, but for the fact that when Rob came for interview, he was wearing bright red paint and leather Dr. Martin boots. And our children and families worker wears bright lead, red paint and leather. And so Sarah just said, well, look at his boots. We've got to appoint him. One of the eldest thought is she was actually serious. Um, but I would suggest that you should appoint young. Um, I know Chris and I have been around the block a bit. We've gained some wisdom and some maturity over the years, etc., etc. But my suggestion with you, do not fear. Be bold. Appoint young. Number two. Uh, sing new. Point young, sing new. By which I mean sing new songs. I have been to... Baptist Church, saved for three years for every one of my 54 years of life. And I reckon I could give many of you people who are even older than me a good run for your money when it comes to listing old hymns. So um, so I remember the hymns that I used to sing when I was younger. Um, my dad used to wake me up on a Sunday morning I was a teenager trying to lie in bed on a Sunday morning and sleep in. Dad was banging on the piano. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. You'll know this of the younger ones. My, my treasures are laid up somewhere above the, above the, beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. My dad used to bang this out on the piano and uh, used to really annoy me. I've kind of got affectionate memories of my father now when I think about that song. But it's an old American gospel song written probably in the 50s. And we never sing it in church anymore. Um, there's songs like, um, well, last Sunday I quoted a really old chorus. Now, just to explain for the younger ones, um, a chorus, in the old days there was hymns and there was choruses. There was only two types of songs, hymns and choruses. And choruses are not the kind of bit you sing after every verse through a song. The chorus was the whole song. Okay, that's confusing, but that's how it was back in the day. And I quoted this old chorus. Which one was it? It was... Um, uh, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Do you remember that? Who, put your hand up. Do you know that one? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the joy that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Fantastic. So I quoted that in a sermon. Um, I didn't quote the, the really gory one. Now, if you know the really gory old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood. 
Okay, can you imagine this? There's a fountain, and it's not water, it's blood, okay? This is a song that used to sing in church. It was fine, in front of kids and everything. There was a, there is a fountain filled with, with blood sprung from Emmanuel's veins. I always had this picture of Jesus, kind of this blood pouring out of him into this fountain. But it gets even worse. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. You need to dive into the blood in the fountain, lose all their guilty stains. How about that? Do you want to try that one? Perhaps Danny, where is Danny? Yeah. Get that one up. That's a, that's a winner, that one, mate. Um, I've told my wife that the only... She's seven years younger than me. I'm bound to die before her. Um, the only song that she has to pick for my funeral is a hymn. And it's a really old hymn. Um, it's a song called... It's a hymn called Beneath the Cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. I gladly take my stand. Um, someone's going to have to sing it, but the congregation probably won't know it, so probably just going to have to sing it at my funeral. Um, uh, the, the words go like this. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock upon a weary land, a hope upon a re- weariness, a rest upon the day, from the burning of the new t- noontide heat and the burden of the day. And then, I think it's the fourth verse, goes like that. Upon the cross of Jesus, my eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my riven heart with tears, to wonders I confess, the wonders of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. You don't get better than that. So they're going to sing it at my funeral. So that's my heritage. That's all the songs I know from the memories of my dad and singing those songs. I still remember the words. But I'm telling you this morning, you need to sing young. You need to sing new songs. Some of the new songs really annoy me. Some of the new songs move me to tears. But sing young. I've had my day. I've had my day. I love those old songs. I don't need to sing them again. I kind of read them in devotional books every so often. Sing young. I told my worship team to sing young. I tell them the all ones that annoy me, but say, don't worry, that's my issue. You can sing them. But play new songs. And the reason for that was absolutely summed up last Sunday when um, we'd had a great service, we had some great testimony, we had a great message, and the band had sung some new uh, songs. And three young people in their about 20, 21-year-olds, who I've never seen before in ABC, uh, passed me on the way out and turned to me and they said, thank you, we really appreciated the service. And I know it wasn't my preaching. And I know it wasn't all the preliminaries. Because I knew they were engaging with the worship that was happening during that service. So, point young. Sing new. Here's a, here's a good one. Make uncomfortable changes. Make uncomfortable changes. And that word's important. Bring discomfort over my 25 years of ordained ministry, there is one thing that stands alone in making people feel uncomfortable in church. That is playing around with meetings. Uh, Changing the content of the meetings. Worse than that is changing the time of meetings. And worse than that is cancelling meetings. Changing meetings making people feel uncomfortable. 
And let me just say this with as much honesty and integrity as I think I can muster. When ministers make changes that make us feel uncomfortable, they haven't lost the plot. They haven't given up on their evangelical credentials. They haven't given up on scripture. And they aren't doing it for a personal whim because they fancy it. Because I think a lot of ministers do things they don't like, like sing some of the new songs that we don't like. But we do it because we know it's the best thing for the church. And it's the most healthy thing for the church. And it's the thing that will take the church on into the future. So, and I have no idea about this. When Jonathan and Chris and others get together and make some uncomfortable decisions, especially around how you gather together, I'll tell you that's why they're doing it. They're doing it because they love God. They love the church, which means they love you, and they desperately want the church to grow and have a future. And yes, I know there are some ministers who are duffins. I know that. But we know that Jonathan isn't, don't we? So trust him when he makes uncomfortable decisions. Now, the last one is simply this. Um, Always remember that your theology, the things you believe, always remember your theology is not 100% correct. Okay? You haven't got it all right, and neither have I. Um, There's this uh, guy that lots of us ministers read called Tom Wright, um, N.T. Wright, um, who uh, is probably the current most esteemed evangelical um, scholar, theologian in this country. And Tom Wright says this wonderful line. He says, you know what? Uh, 20% of what I believe is not true. The only problem is I don't know which 20%, which I think is a wonderful thing to say. To always know that you haven't got it quite all right. There's, there's always things to learn. And another N. Wright Nigel Wright, who you may know as a predecessor of mine at Altrincham Baptist Church, went to Spurgeon's, and now spends his time doing a lot of things like N.T. Wright does, sitting there writing books and trying to download all his amazing understanding on the pages of Scripture. He wrote a book recently that I read called Vital Truth. And in Vital Truth, you really just have to read the introduction if you ever see the book. And the introduction is worth the book price in itself. In the introduction, he says this. He says... All Christian understanding and truth can fall into one of three sections. The first, the first is the creeds, the dogma, he calls it. So uh, we have the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We sometimes sing that we, we, we believe in God the Father or whatever. The, um, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Spirit. And that, that one. Um, that is Christian truth. That is the non-negotiable stuff of our faith. If it's not that, it's not Christian. That's why the JDWs, you've got it completely wrong. If it's not that, it's not Christian. Dogma, the non-negotiable stuff. The next stuff below that, he describes as doctrine. It's the theology from which we've grown out of that dogma. So, for example, um, atonement theology. What was Jesus Christ doing on the cross? Well, we know he was dying for the sins of the world. We know that he was a substitute for you and I. But there's other ways. You could read Gustav Aulen. You could read um, uh, what Tom Wright writes about it these days. There's, there's slightly different takes over exactly what was going on in that cross. That's, that's the doctrine. You've got the dogma, the non-negotiable, and the doctrine. And Nigel Wright says the rest of it, you know what? The rest of it is theological opinion. So when 
you discuss and talk and argue about stuff, just think for a moment, where does it fit? Is it the dogma? Is it the non-negotiables? The stuff I'll go to the state for? Is it the doctrine? Or is it just that other stuff that the Bible has remained open for us because it's not as important as the other stuff? So, my point was that um, you and I, we haven't got it all right. A point young, sing you, that's definitely something we should do, make uncomfortable decisions. And we haven't all got it 100% right. Now it's your turn. So I want to invite you just for a few moments, for five, six, seven minutes, to just turn around, say hello to some other people, and ask them, what is it that you think needs to shift in Lynn Baptist Church to accommodate the new wine, the new that Christ is bringing here by his spirit? Okay? So I'll give you five or six minutes to do that. Thank you.
sorry. Um, we haven't got time for any feedback, have we, really? So oh, I just, if yeah. I just pray. Yeah, yeah. 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 great. Can I give you uh, 30 seconds? Got 30 seconds? So, uh, can we uh, just? You seem quite animated, which is uh, which is good and interesting. I'll leave that for Jonathan to sort out when he comes back. Um, can we just uh, pray, uh, Lord? This isn't academic stuff. Um, otherwise, we'd just be disrespecting the scriptures and just saying it's there to hear something to entertain us for half an hour or so. Um, We only ever read the Bible to hear you speak to us. And we pray, Father, that whatever we've said, and I'm not in control of that, you're the one who's spoken into hearts and minds. So I know, Lord, that it's not my definition. But whatever you have said to this church community, um, if it's good and valuable, um, would it be retained and and kept? And would you in some way, please, uh, work it through to bring about this constant cycle of, of renewal and change and growth and development in the life of your community. Um, just pray specifically, Father, for where the church might be in, say, two years' time. What would be different? What new wineskin would have been brought here to accommodate the new life that you've been bringing? What joy will have been expressed in that way? What healing and transformation would be enabled because of that new wineskin? And Father, we uh, we praise you and bless you for all that you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen.